Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Hope you're all having a great day today. A special shout out to Yoshiko Dart, my dear friend. Yoshiko, hope you're having a great day. And, you know, we have 17 countries, 17 that listen to this show. 17. Number one, Ireland. Ireland, I don't know what to tell you. You're number one every week. Ireland, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. I mean, keep spreading the word. Keep telling other people about the show. Remember, everyone, it's a podcast, so you can go to Apple or Spotify to hear this show. At Bender Consulting, I am committed to one thing, working with our companies to find them people with disabilities for employment, and you're helping me do that, Ireland, by spreading the news. Also, hey, I want to thank Highmark, who is our lead sponsor and has been for three years now, because this show's been on over 14 years, but for the past three years, they have been the sponsor for the entire year. And at the beginning of the year, for the first several months, audio I. So thank you to both of you, because without you, I can't do what I'm doing. And I am so excited today. I am. I'm so excited because we are going to be talking to some great people with a great cause at the Bo Biden Foundation. And that would be Josh Elkhorn and Claudine Malone, both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Joyce. Sure. And actually, Josh, I'm going to start with you um, so, so you can tell us how you first became involved with the Bo Biden Foundation. Actually, I'm going to involve a lot of questions at the same time. How did you first become involved what is the mission of the foundation, and why the heck did you get involved with them? Awesome. Well, thanks again for having us. Um, I helped Bo's family start the Bo Biden Foundation for the Protection of Children uh, in June of 2015. Bo Biden was the Attorney General uh, in the state of Delaware, uh, here in the U.S. for our friends um, abroad, um, and uh, he kind of was elected in 2006 as Attorney General um, and really made the basis of his campaign and the basis of his work in public life um, to protect children from, to protect vulnerable people um, from abuse, uh, specifically children. Uh, and when, when Bo passed away from, from cancer in 2015, uh, we knew that his family and I knew that uh, we wanted to make sure that what he did and what he started continued uh, and that children across the country, across the world, um, were protected from abuse. So um, we started the foundation, as I said, in June of 2015. Uh, our mission is to protect children and confront abuse. Uh, we do that in a variety of ways, which we can talk about um, a little bit down the road. But um, I had worked for Bo in a political, um, couple of different political capacities um, prior to his passing and um, you know, heard him talk about uh, the scourge of child sexual abuse in all sorts of different environments, uh, in small group settings, you know, in front of large groups, uh, one-on-one on the phone when, when talking with um, friends and donors and supporters. Uh, it really sort of ran through everything he did in public life, and we're, we're all blessed to be able to continue that work today. Uh, let me ask you, what caused him to have this cause? What Do you know? Do you know why he first became involved? Sure. I mean, I, you know, it, it really is about um, the abuse of power, I think it was for Bo. Um, you know, the, the cardinal sin, the, the, the greatest sin of all time is to raise your hand to someone who's um, vulnerable, who's less powerful than you. Um, and, you know, that sort of, um, that, that was something that Bo learned from um, the earliest age, um, from his grandfather, he said, and, and, and his father as well. And, you know, that commitment to standing up when people are harmed uh, is something that, as I said, just ran through every decision he made in public life. Yeah, I think one of the most tragic things to see uh, while uh, 
we had Vice President Biden in office was when his son died. I mean, that was absolutely heart-wrenching. And I am assuming that impacted so many people connected to his family. It sure did. I mean, the the first few months after um, Bo passed, the foundation, without really doing anything, um, you know, was able to raise a significant amount of money, money that helped us get started um, and and really gave us the ability to hit the ground running um, once we brought in our brought on our executive director, um, Patty Daly Lewis, who's unfortunately unable to be with us today. She's um, leading a, a discussion um, here in Delaware um, around human uh, around sex trafficking of, of minors. Um, but Patty had run the Delaware, uh, the family division in the Delaware Department of Justice for Bo, um, which was the first time the family division had existed. Bo brought in all uh, the various uh, departments and divisions of the Department of Justice that handled anything related to children and families under one person, uh, and that was that was our executive director. Um, and she had, you know, had prosecuted um, crimes against children for 30 years um, prior to retiring and, and coming to take the lead at the Bo Biden Foundation. So um, we were able to hit the ground running in January of 2016 um, because of the outpouring of support from Bo's friends and family and, and, and the folks here in Delaware. Oh, that is awesome. Um, what, why did you go into this? career? I mean, what made you go into this? And by the way, you have a a background very impressive with fundraising, and that is also really hard. So what led you from that to the uh, Bo Biden Foundation? Well, I'd worked for Bo, as I said, for a couple of years before his passing and and saw how committed he was to this. Um, And he was my friend. I traveled the country with him. I was was, uh, um, very fond of everything that he did. And um, you know, after he passed, I wanted to, to continue to do the things that he, he, he started. Um, and at the time, there were um, just a couple of people who, you know, were, were, were in a position to, you know, stop doing what they were doing and help start the foundation. Uh, and I was lucky to be, to be one of them. Um, we wouldn't be here, though, if it weren't for our executive director um, who, you know, left her job uh, at the Delaware Department of Justice to, to take the helm. Yeah, you know what? You're a good person. That, I, I'm very sorry about you losing your friend, but you know what? Look what you did. You're, you're doing yeah. something great. You're doing something great. And Claudine, wow, you have an incredible background as a police sergeant. I mean, I you know when I talked to you the other day, I thought, wow, she was a police sergeant. Now you go from police work to the Bo Biden Foundation. How did that happen? How did that happen, and why did you want to do that? Well, there's, uh, you know, and for the police officers who are listening out there and, and, and prosecutors as well, you, know, you really get exposed to um, the detail, in detail, uh, to the very worst of what human behavior can be. Um, and in, in my years in detectives um, and, the, and uh, you know, similarly, uh, to Patty, it was within a police agency in the state of Delaware, where I was assigned to uh, crimes of domestic violence, crimes against children, um, and managing the sex offender registry for our agency. And um, there's just things that you can't unhear, and there's things that you can't unsee. Um, and I think I just got a sense of getting, well, getting tired of seeing just the end result. And it really puts you in a place where you feel very helpless. And um, so after I retired, um, I, I had a job in between as a, um, in higher ed and then started volunteering um, for the foundation after I heard um, our, our ED, Patty Daly-Lewis, uh, speaking um, and saw the Stewards of Children Program, which is created by Darkness to Light, another um, nonprofit foundation here in the U.S., and knew I had to be a part of this. Uh, so I started volunteering, and after about a year and a half, received a job offer, much to my delight. Uh, and so I've been here for uh, really going on two years now, uh, new to the nonprofit world, and it's work that feeds my soul. It's nice to get ahead of. Um, you know, as Josh described, the scourge of uh, child sexual abuse and, and really not just teach people how to react and handle to handle it 
uh, or, or deal with it if they suspect it, but to even get ahead of that and talk about some primary prevention strategies that really do work. Wow. Well, I don't know how, uh, when you're at police work, you do this, because I'm, I'm going to guess that for some people in police work, they end up with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, yes, I think the, the danger um, that many are faced with um, is that you could very easily supplant um, a victim in an investigation, their face with a face of a loved one, and that leads you down a path that is very unhealthy. And so you, you constantly just have to guard against that. And one of the things that they taught us in the police academy was to make sure that you maintain a friend circle that is outside the police world to just kind of keep you uh, level. Um, and that really was helpful for me. But this has uh, really turned my life around in, uh, um, uh, after having the experience of policing and then, and then stepping into um, some, you know, a situation or a position where I could be an influencer and maybe prevent um, anything from ever occurring. But that's, I mean, it doesn't get much more powerful than that. Right. The preventing it. The preventing it doesn't get much powerful. And what a great thing you are doing. And before we go to break, and I'm going to be doing this throughout the show, what is the website if someone wants to make a donation? You can go to BoBidenFoundation.org. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a little donate button. Um, Our work is powered by um, our grassroots supporters. Okay. BoBidenFoundation.org. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, you heard it, BoBidenFoundation.org, and isn't it great to give to a foundation that is doing something as important as saving those that do not have anyone to help them? We'll be right back, but right now we've got to go to break. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Josh and Claudine. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Disability Matters. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Claudine Malone, the Director of Programming, and Josh Elkhorn, the Chief Operating Officer for the Bo Biden Foundation and Oh, my God, what powerful work they are doing. And I do. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the specific programs and specific areas of concern. So, Claudine, why don't we start with you? Could you tell us a little bit more about your position first as the director of programming? Of course. Uh, Thank you, Joyce. We are... Concerned with um, training uh, 
folks in professional capacities, such as law enforcement, uh, medical professionals, educators, uh, and and, uh, professionals with youth-serving organizations, and also the community at large, um, and with adult audiences on how to prevent, recognize, uh, and react responsibly, which includes many times reporting child sexual abuse and child abuse in general when, when they have a reasonable suspicion that it's occurring. Um, we also conduct programming uh, with children uh, involving Internet safety and cyberbullying. So that typically runs in two veins, um, right? So we're trying to protect young people when they're online from themselves because they can make themselves unknowingly extremely vulnerable with the information that they put out or the images they put out about themselves. And then also protecting them from um, others, bad actors who are online who intend um, to do them harm. So uh, we do that pretty regularly within schools, school assemblies, uh, youth groups um, throughout not just our state, but actually we're in uh, our reach has increased to 15 states now, I'm happy to announce. And then our most recent initiative is called the Shield of Protection Initiative, and um, this is around um, policy reviews for youth-serving organizations and schools, whereby we specifically analyze their policies and procedures around youth protection, and we go through a rubric with them, um, with these partners who sign an MOU with us. Um, We go through typically either a series of meetings, teleconference, or a combination of the two, and really go step-by-step to ensure that the children and the families that they're serving are protected uh, from this harm. Well, you know what? I have several questions there. First, um, well, you answered one of them. I was going to ask you, do you go to other states uh, and speak in other states and have events in other states, and does that include Pennsylvania? It does include Pennsylvania. Um, just about uh, three weeks ago or so, I was out in Oregon, um, and our executive director is um, our probably most frequent traveler. She was in Abu Dhabi a few weeks ago as well um, at Special Olympics International World Games. Um, so we have really blossomed, and and because of the awareness and the level of consciousness being increased throughout our communities, folks are now requesting this information. It's been such a, a dark secret, and actually within many families, kind of a family secret. Um, but we also recognize that it's been a secret within organizations as well. Um, and, and we see this in the news, right, where um, something arises, it kind of gets buried. Um, the offender is oftentimes passed off to another location or another state, um, and the, the abuse never gets reported. And those offenders are given an opportunity to then reoffend, And they can do that in an organization that doesn't have fortified policies around youth protection. Um, and they'll test the, the culture. So an offender will typically, you know, violate the boundary of of a child, and when they see that this is acceptable and nobody stops them, they're emboldened, and the child also sees this and understands that, um, you know, silence is complicity, and the offender um, becomes more and more emboldened, the child becomes, um, you know, less and less and less likely to ever um, divulge the abuse or report it themselves. Now, do high schools across America... Have these uh, comprehensive policies in place or not? Uh, we're seeing a lot of dissension between um, um, you know various areas, at least in in the U.S. As far as how comprehensive their policies are, certainly um, you know most have policies. So we we have been confronted with organizations who have nothing on paper. Um, but for the most part, schools have policies, but then we ask them to take it a bit further, and we get into really the logistics of the day-to-day um, you know, operations 
such as, you know, how is the bathroom handled? If it's an overnight camp, how are those sleeping arrangements and what do they look like? Um, and we ask, you know, hey, are, are, when you're onboarding your, your folks, what do those background checks look like? And are they responsible to report an interim arrests? So if between background checks, um, you know, and if I get a background check and then two days later I'm arrested, am I required to report that? Um, so these are the, you know, we really do get into, you know, the details uh, of these policies to make sure that folks aren't guessing. And when, when, when it's understood what the policy is, then employees are emboldened. Um, and I use the example in my training, Joyce, if you and I are, are teachers and you get done one day earlier than I do and you walk past my classroom, the door's closed and you look through the, the small vertical window that is typically in school classroom doors, right, and you see that I am tutoring a student one-on-one with the door closed. If our policy is silent on how tutoring and one-on-one interactions take place, then you're stuck with an ethical dilemma that may be uh, a little muddied with the fact that we're colleagues and the fact that maybe we're even friends. Um, but if the policy very firmly states that all after-school or all one-on-one interactions must be um, um, interruptible, must be observable, um, such as they must take place in the computer lab where maybe three of the four walls have viewing windows, now you're not stuck in that same place. Now you're emboldened with the fact that there is a policy that is very crisp and concise in this area, and that specifically addresses youth protection. Uh, and you'll open that door and you'll say, hey, Claudine, <laughs> principal so-and-so comes in here and sees that you're tutoring one on one with the door closed, she's going to flip her lid. And that's what we want to see in, in, in schools and, and youth-serving organizations. Yeah, boy, that makes it so much better. Policy always makes it so much easier uh, for communication. And uh, why I was asking you that, a lot of the organizations I'm involved with, you know, we go through, uh, you know, checks for child abuse, you know, fingerprints, all of that. I just wondered if it was like that in all states. I think it really, this is Josh, um, I, really, I think it depends. I think most organizations we've worked with, uh, as Claudine said, have something written down. The, the, what we challenge organizations to do is to regularly look at their policies, think about what they could do better uh, when appropriate, make those changes. I think a lot of times, you know, an organization could hire a law firm to write and create a great youth protection policy that is fine for the year or two until everything changes, right, until there's new uh, platforms and new social media outlets and, and all this. Um, and when the culture changes, an organization needs to take a look at those policies and see if they need to be improved. And that's really what the Shield of Protection is. It's a uh, guided assessment um, by our experts um, working with the organization to figure out what they can do just a little bit better. Often it's around the margins. It's little incremental changes. It's small additions to the policy, as Claudine pointed out, um, all contact between an adult and a child being observable and interruptible. Uh, having a social media policy where, look, I'm a, I'm a high school cross-country coach. Um, there's no reason that I should ever be following any of my runners on any social media platform. Uh, having that written down um, just makes it that much easier for, for coaches and, 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 and staff and volunteers to know what, what the right thing to do is. Mm, good advice. Good advice. Well, hey, it's time for our On the Half Hour news break, Advocacy Matters, and we have with us Perry Jude Radisic from Pennsylvania Disability Rights. Hey, Perry, how are you? Hey, I'm great, Joyce. Uh, thanks for having us on again. For our So today uh, we want to... Uh, Honor Mental Health Awareness Month. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So advocates around the country are organizing outreach and training activities. And these activities are important because the mental health advocacy reduces stigma. So when individuals with mental illness, our family members, and our allies speak out, it helps by raising awareness and reducing the stigma we face in the community, at work, and in school. 
For example, in Pennsylvania, a coalition of organizations, and these groups include UPMC, Beacon, Magellan Healthcare, and more, are hosting the Pennsylvania Mental Health and Wellness Conference out in Hershey, Pennsylvania. We have a link to that conference on our website at disabilityrightspa.org. So these conferences and advocacy helps by getting us together, uh, addressing advocacy issues, and reducing stigma. So as disability advocates, one of our biggest policy challenges, if we want to talk about policy, is protecting the gains we have made in mental health coverage under the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. So we can't forget that before the Affordable Care Act, access to mental health coverage and insurance was lacking. Mental health was considered a pre-existing condition, so it was hard to get insurance with a pre-existing condition. And if you had private insurance, coverage for mental health services was extremely limited. Maybe you could have access to 10 visits with a therapist was limited. So threats to the repeal for all of the Affordable Care Act or part of the Affordable Care Act are real. And challenges continue to be filed in court along with the continued introduction of legislation to repeal the ACA. Now, on the positive side, Medicaid expansion in most of our states by the end of 2020, we'll have provided insurance to more than 32 million people who were either uninsured or underinsured. This means 32 million more individuals will have access to mental health care services under Medicaid expansion. The Affordable Care Act also requires insurance companies to offer mental health and addiction treatment as one of the 10 essential benefits in the, uh, in the package with no annual cap on lifetime dollar limits. That's if you're in the exchanges. The Affordable Care Act also requires mental health parity and insurance sold on the exchanges. So if you purchase insurance through the exchanges, you have parity in your physical and mental health coverage. So this is why for, for advocates, and, and when we think about policy uh, here in May for Mental Health Awareness Month, advocacy matters. So we have to protect the Affordable Care Act and our access to mental health care coverage. We have a link on our website where you can send a letter to your members of Congress and let them know that the ACA is still important to persons with mental illness, particularly here as we celebrate Mental Health, health Awareness Month, Joyce. Oh, I'll tell you what, I am so with you, Perry, because I am telling you uh, the stigma that people with mental health issues face is daunting. It's terrible. It's so impacts employment. So thank you so much for talking about this. And one more time, your website. Yes, go to disabilityrightspa.org. Uh, if you scroll down on our homepage, you'll find a link to the show already that's up. You can uh, c- click on that and find uh, the link to uh, the website that will have the uh, letter you can send to your members of Congress. And if you're in Pennsylvania, a link to the advocacy con- uh, conference later here in the month of May. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next week. Hey, thanks, Joyce. Yeah, a thing we started having on this show over two years ago is having a update on the news because a lot of people, they really don't know what is going on, what's happening, um, you know, what's happening for people with disabilities across the country. So it's great to have uh, Perry Judon and talk about this. Uh, Claudine, I'm looking at your website. And I read that one in six children will be sexually abused in their life by the time they are 18. Do you know when I first read that, 
I thought, oh, wait, I glanced at it. I read it wrong. That can't be possible. Um, I was shocked, absolutely shocked. Is this pervasive across the board? Uh, is it different in different economic levels, such as lower income, families? Uh, what, what, what is that? What is the story there? The numbers are very shocking, Um, and we think these numbers are fairly conservative. It it depends on where you are, and and the difficulty in in quantifying this is obviously we don't know how underreported it is, and we also find that uh, child sexual abuse is not uniformly defined. Um, So you'll you'll see the the varying numbers, um, one in so many. Um, But, you know, to your point, the, the numbers are... Fairly across the board, uh, as far as socioeconomic classes are concerned, um, all pretty relative. You know, some of the increased risks that we see are um, children with prior sexual abuse. Um, so what we find is that, um, you know, once someone is victimized, that their chances of being re-victimized again are, are significantly increased. Um, one-parent homes, unfortunately, is another risk factor, um, you know, running away, uh, truancy is another factor um, that we see. And um, the um, percentages still show that girls are victimized more commonly. But those numbers are starting to shift. And boys are starting to um, feel more comfortable in disclosing their abuse to us. And we're also, as, as a society, I think, understanding that, that this can happen to boys as well and be just as, in some cases, um, more traumatic um, for them because of the cultural barriers around uh, reporting for boys. So um, the, the, the more startling statistic, I think, if I could throw another one on you, Joyce, is that uh-huh. 90% of the children who are abused are abused by someone they know. And that is a very uncomfortable statistic for all of us. Because chances are if, if the child knows who their abuser is, who is um, you know, abusing them sexually, then the rest of that child's circle also probably knows. So the family probably knows this individual. And this is very commonly the, um, the, the MO, the modus operandi, or the, the way that they um, you know, gain trust and time alone with children is that they first start with grooming the children's family and grooming the child's friends. This is, this is done um, you know, by, by gaining that that um, unobservable, uninterruptible time with children. And so what we're trying to sway people um, and convince them of is that we can no longer continue to grant blind trust where children are concerned. Um, and that needs to be done across the board. And that's what we, you'll hear us repeat that, uh, making sure that these interactions are interruptible and observable, and that is why, so that we can intercede when there is any kind of boundary-crossing behaviors um, and policing that from adult to adult. Trace, if I can yeah. um, pick up on something Claudine uh, referenced there. Yeah, it is staggering that um, nine times out of ten a child is abused by someone they know, love, or trust, and... I think that makes it so much more important that the other adults in that child's life uh, know what to look for um, in, in terms of the signs of child sexual abuse, but also how to react responsibly if a child divulges. Uh, if, um, if, you know, the person who's perpetrating this abuse on a child is mom's boyfriend, uh, the daughter or the son may not feel comfortable talking to mom about it, um, but they are comfortable talking to a teacher. They are comfortable talking to a coach. They are comfortable talking to a mentor. And so one of the things that we focus on is not just training parents, um, but training the other adults around children um, so that when they do divulge uh, that they've been abused, that, that um, uh, is heard, um, responded to appropriately, both in the moment in terms of body language and, and word choice, I believe you, it shouldn't happen to you, uh, and then after the fact, when the, when the report is made to the appropriate um, hotline. All that stuff is included in, 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 and is addressed um, very well in Stewards of Children, which is a program we delivered, uh, Claudine referenced earlier, developed by Darkness to Light. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. It is horrifying. I mean, it's the horrifying other, and it's shocking. 
The other statistics to throw out there, and I, I think this is incredibly uh, appropriate for this audience right now in this conversation today, is that while 1 in 10 children will be abused before the age of 18, um, children with uh, disabilities suffer abuse at an even higher rate, perhaps as much as 3 in 10 um, children with intellectual differences or any type of disability um, will be abused before the age of 18. And that's sort of the basis for our work with Special Olympics and with you know, other organizations that um, you know, directly serve children with, um, with, with disabilities. So children with disabilities have an even higher percentage of being abused. Correct. Oh, you know, so if you're listening to the show right now, I mean, this is so disturbing to me. Uh, However, it can't be kept in secret. You know, we can't change anything unless we talk about it. But I, I hope you tell everyone about this Bo Biden Foundation because if you're listening, how could you not tell everyone? I mean, look what they're doing. You know, there's a child right now that's being abused that needs someone. Right now as we're speaking. And then I know you're right about children with disabilities because I had this in one of my classes uh, because I teach the Bender Leadership Academy, which Claudine knows about, for high school students with disabilities. And the teacher came to me and said, oh, you know, Mary loves coming to this class so much. I said, and Mary was in a wheelchair, and I said, oh, well, I love having her. Yeah, you mean so much to her. I said, oh, that, that makes me feel so good. She said, because, uh, you know, he's in prison now, but her father... Uh, sexually abused her and I thought I mean what can I say other than absolutely shocked shocked but you know now that I've been in this field for years I know that children with intellectual disabilities and autism and other disabilities uh, are frequently Abuse. So, you know, that's why I'm saying everyone listening to this show, you, you know, you know, I'm living with epilepsy, but there are children living with epilepsy that have many issues that this this can happen to any child. But I do believe the more vulnerable you are, the more people can prey on you. And, and I have to ask you, when you were talking about 90% are people that you know, now, how the heck do you break this? When it is like, uh, you know, a couple's married and it's the father or the mother, how, how, how do you help that child? I mean, you know, how, how do you penetrate this? You're right. Children do play a role in this, and we and and where we focus a lot of our attention on um, training adults because. Adults have never had that opportunity before. Uh, we still continue to talk to children about what are, what's an appropriate touch and what is not an appropriate touch, um, because they 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 do have a a, a place in this conversation. You know, it, one of the things that we try to really reaffirm with kids is to build the number of trusted adults that they have in their world that they could go to if they were ever even uncomfortable with something, whether it's a conversation or something they saw that was sent to them online um, or a request for, from an adult. Um, because when the these offenders come with um, offers of friendship, um, and an offer to be a good listener, um, kind of be that, that best friend that the kid maybe doesn't have at that moment in their lives, it's difficult for children to discern intent, right? We all kind of think we're um, expert profilers. I'm sure that many of the people listening today are fans of one crime show or another, <laughs> and we would love to think that we could spot, spot them coming. But the fact of the matter is that we can't. Um, and I can tell you, even after 20 years of policing, um, you know, Patty, our, our ED, after, you know, 32, three years of um, being a family law attorney, we would love to be able to give you this, this list of what to look out for. But the truth is, we don't know what they look like. We can't spot them coming. And so what we do is we instill in children, you know, this is what an appropriate touch is, and this, this is not 
Um, and these are the people who, you know, and asking them, having these conversations, and it's time-consuming about who they could go to if they were ever uncomfortable. Um, and then, you know, it always, it's, it's a continuing conversation. It's not a one and done. So when you give your child an iPhone for the very first time, you tell them that there's software in place to monitor what they are viewing, what uh, conversations that they're having, um, and that they could go to you if they ever felt uncomfortable. Um, and then the conversation continues. Uh, you check in periodically. You ask them, how does that app work that you just uploaded? And if you ever upload something, then you know that you need to, you know, kind of sit with us and do that and register uh, together so that we're not giving out personal information that we shouldn't be. Um, and so we, when we do these um, presentations to the community at large, um, particularly around Internet safety, it's really guided towards parents and caregivers, too. Um, this is your role now because it's a difficult and strange field for us because we didn't grow up with it. Um, and so getting comfortable with being uncomfortable uh, is really important. Um, but children are very receptive to this. The danger is that we, we don't want to fall back to where we once were, where we simply tell children, look out for this, you know, because it used to be stranger danger and good touch, bad touch. Well, now mm-hmm. stranger danger is almost debunked, right, because we understand the statistics now. And as far as good touch, bad touch, unfortunately, some of the bad touches may feel good to a child, and they cannot discern the fact that these are malevolent acts, and they can't discern that these are criminal acts, because they think that the person who's doing it to them loves them. And so that's where adults need uh, to understand that they have a very critical role here, as uncomfortable and as troubling as a, and upsetting as it may be, we must talk about these things. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I want to tell you, listeners, first of all, go to that BoBidenFoundation.org and make a contribution. Um, I also want to tell you, tell everyone, if you're listening to the show right now, Tell everyone, share it on social media, whatever, because as I said, you can go to Apple or Spotify and hear this podcast, and if we could just get this out to more and more people, how wonderful uh, that would be. That would be just wonderful. So, Josh, in addition, like, what else do we do to support you in the foundation? Yeah, Joyce, thanks for, thanks for uh, the plug for the website. I think the most important thing that folks can do is get involved. Uh, if you're on the board of a youth-serving organization, if you volunteer your time at your children's school, um, go to our website, go to the, on the drop-down under programming, click the Shield of Protection tab, uh, fill out the Contact Us form, and let us know um, that, that you'd like us to come work with that organization. We're, uh, as Claudine said earlier, we're in 16 states right now, uh, our work with Special Olympics will put us in uh, all 50 states and around the world um, over the next few years. But finding just one school or one after-school club or one youth sports league um, in any city, any state, um, will help protect children. Uh, and that's what we really need. I mean, there's, we're a small team of six people right now. Um, frankly, um, we don't have the time to be out um, recruiting partners in all, all 50 states. So. Uh, if you're listening to the show now and you would like us to help your youth-serving organization uh, or school that your child attends, um, assess their policies, figure out how to, how to protect their children, they serve a little bit better, um, we're here to help. Great. That, that, and I hope you do. I know there are different groups I'm going to tell that I know personally. But again, you know, sometimes we hear these things and we say, oh, my God, is that terrible. Yeah, well, do something about it. You know, just like this foundation, they can't do more without any revenues coming in. So, you know, don't sit back. Do something about it. You've got to do something about it. Um, And before I ask you this next question, Josh, I wanted to ask you, um, Claudine, what do you ever tell people advice on what age their children should start using social media? Well, I think that, you know, if you look with a keen eye at some of our most popular platforms, such as Twitter and Facebook and such, you see that the, they have age limits set already. Um, and for most of those platforms, it's 13. Um, and you know, as you and I are sitting here today, that there are parents who are very well aware 
that their children under the age of 13 um, have those social media platforms. And 13 is, a, is, is what the platforms themselves have created, not necessarily um, a, a, a direct reflection on the capacity or the maturity level or the readiness. We know our children best. And so, you know, we have to have, um, you know, take the friend hat off for a moment, put the parent hat on, and really make a decision, is this in the best interest of my child? And if the answer to that is yes, then it, does, then it, then it needs guidance and it needs uh, monitoring. Um, we find that a lot of folks, want to, or a lot of parents in particular, and I'm a parent, so I'm not beating up parents, but um, want to know what's the, what's the latest spyware that they could get. And, you know, I think that that's a wonderful tool, and there are several out there, but it needs to be married with a conversation with your child around what's appropriate and what's not. And that reminding them as well that social media and that iPhone and the Internet access is a privilege, not a right. Um, you'd laugh, but sometimes we go to school assemblies and ask the kids, hey, what's the, which amendment in the United States Constitution does it say that you have a right to be on, online? And I've had a couple answers, actually. And so they need to be reminded that it is a privilege. Um, and then, you know, removing that privilege if they violate the rules. We um, have on our website as well um, a contract that parents, it's a, um, a use agreement that parents can uh, discuss with their children, whereby they, they both sign this agreement that these are the rules that I will abide by while online. Um, and, you know, we encourage parents to, to um, print that out or maybe make up their own, um, go over it with their child. Uh, they sign it, the child signs it, and then tape it on the refrigerator um, so that it's a reminder that, that this is a privilege of yours. And if you violate the rules of the privilege, then the privilege will be taken away. Yeah, that's good. That's a good idea. Uh, and Claudine, you are continuing on to school, correct? Yes, I have my last final exam tonight, as a matter of fact, and then I'll be finished law school. Well, congratulations. Congratulations and good luck tonight. How Thank timely you. of a question, huh? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> I said, what a timely question. Yes. I asked you, and it's tonight is your final. And I did not know that, uh, listeners. I didn't know that, just so you know. Uh, hey, Josh, before we go, I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about bullying. Um, what, what do you do in that area with your school, with the schools? Absolutely. This is uh, an, an incredibly important part of our programming. Uh, as Claudine said, we have programming for adults, teaching them to recognize the signs and symptoms of child sexual abuse. We have programming for youth-serving organizations to improve their child protection policies and procedures. But I think at the real root of what we do, and this was at the root of what Bo did as Attorney General, is talk to kids about being safe online and, and, and standing up and interrupting bullying. Uh, Bo, in his eight years as Attorney General, spoke to about 35,000 kids across the state of Delaware. I'm happy to say uh, to report that over the last two and a half, three years, We've spoken to about 25,000 kids about being wow. safe online and recognizing uh, and preventing bullying. The program we currently deliver is based on uh, that of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, NetSmarts is the name of the, of the suite of trainings. And it's really, I mean, it's fantastic. It identifies three or four different behaviors online and, and uh, around bullying that kids can really if they're, if they're taught how, how to, the, the long-term impacts of these behaviors, uh, I think they, they will stop doing those things. Uh, and the bullying piece in, in particular is important. Um, I mean, I was bullied as a kid. I'm sure most of us have a story of that. Um, if I didn't go to school, I wasn't bullied. So I you know, was sick often. Uh, if I didn't get on the bus, I wasn't bullied. And I think now one of the problems we have with these devices is I grab my iPhone off my desk, um, that bullying follows you. Uh, mm-hmm. It is digital. It is cyber. And if you're mm-hmm. uh, lying in bed at 11 o'clock at night and you get an alert on your phone that somebody's tweeting at you, um, you worry. What is it about? What are they saying about me? What are they, what's the comment they're making about me? Um, it follows a kid. And that's, you know, that my heart breaks for, for young people right now who are victims of bullying because there's no relief from it unless somebody stands up and says, that's enough. Um, and reports the bullying or acts as a friend to that child and, 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 and takes it upon them to, to 
take them under their wing and to help them, um, you know, as they're, as they're going through this tough time. Oh, you are so right, because I always say, uh, you know, what you, you know, before social media, if someone gives you a hard time at school, what do you do? You go home. You have the whole weekend. You're with your family. Or as you said, you don't go to school. But it doesn't matter now. It's Facebook. It's uh, texting. It's uh, on Instagram. It's on Twitter. It's on Snapchat. It's somewhere. But you can have this nonstop, you're a freak, you're ugly, you should die wherever the person goes. So I always encourage uh, all young people, if you are bullied even one time, once, you have to tell someone. One time, you have to tell someone. And I'm really glad to hear that you uh, do that uh, at your foundation. I think that's spectacular. And I would say, Joyce, just one, one other point. Um, I think the social media platforms get it and have, have figured out that their platforms are a mechanism by which children can be bullied and have built in, have baked in sort of reporting uh, mechanisms where you can flag a comment as inappropriate. You can, you know, press the, the little red flag and it gets flagged and reviewed. Um, people need to use that. Kids need to use that. Uh, I wonder what it would be like if every school across the country had a, a, a group of kids who, when a child was being bullied online, flooded that child on the same platform with positive messages of love and reinforcement and support um, and, and marked all those hateful comments or hurtful comments as, as inappropriate. Um, that would be a wonderful thing. Boy, it would not be a wonderful world. Yes, it would. So, first of all, Bo and Claudine, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you very much. Um, and, Josh, one more time. It's Bo Biden, Bo Biden Foundation. Foundation.org. Yep, B-E-A-U-B-I-D-E-N Foundation.org. And what a wonderful family they are. What a wonderful family. You know, we just had a vice president here in Pittsburgh, and I can see why Bo, uh, you know, continued and had this love. Uh, and, you know, I just so much am thrilled that I had you on the show today. And once again, if you're listening, you want someone else to hear it, remember, Apple, Spotify, uh, you can get this and tell other people to listen to this podcast and share it. And with that, you know, we went ev- end every show with a quote. And today the quote is, mental illness is nothing to be ashamed of and stigma, a simple and terrible bias, stigma and bias, shame us all, said President William Clinton. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.